0: Sponsored by Black Magic Design, the world's highest quality products for the feature film, post, and broadcast industries. BlackMagicDesign.com. And by JMR Rentals, professional, digital, cinema, and broadcast equipment rentals in Brooklyn, New York. JMRNY.com.
1: Hello and welcome to No Rest for the Weekend. I'm Jason Godby and today on the program doing a little bit of East meets West dueling film festivals. We got New York Film Festival on the East Coast and Mill Valley Film Festival on the West Coast. Joining me now via Zoom to help me talk about these films, he's our man on the West Coast and the man behind ActuallyPaid.com, Mr. William Hammond. Welcome.
0: Hey, hey, good to be
1: back. Welcome back man it's good to see you uh you were um you were digging into these films man with Mill Valley uh burning through them
0: it's it, it it's one of the premier festivals here on the west coast especially during this time of year for uh, prestige Fair and award season campaigning like th- between this and AFI Fest th- those are your big two west coast festivals so uh glad glad to finally truly you know dive in feet first with it
1: yeah we've got uh, hopefully afi coming up a little bit later uh october is chock full of film festivals it's no rest for the fest it's october uh here so uh but we got a lot of movies to talk about so I want to get right to it. What is our first movie for the evening?
0: Uh, the first one I have here is uh, Patrol, uh, a documentary directed by Brian Allgood and uh, Camila Castro. Right off the bat, this reminded me of a movie from last year called The Territory. Uh, it's a documentary. I think you can find it on Disney+. Plus. Very similar themes, basically about how indigenous peoples in Central and South America are having their rainforest land basically invaded and destroyed by land settlers and cattle ranchers because the beef trade is humongous. This film especially uh, takes place in Nicaragua with the protected land of the Rama Creole peoples. The beef trade is pretty much the biggest business in the country, so law enforcement conveniently looks the other way when all of these people come in and say hey i know the law says this is your land but it's my land now choppity choppity moo moo feed feed in essence the the people of the rama creole they get together with an american conservationist and they literally go on patrol along their borders basically finding these squatters informing them that they're there illegally taking documentary video evidence taking statements because a lot of these farmers they're either dumb or arrogant enough to admit that they're illegally because they believe they have a God-given right to the land rather than whatever the laws of men say. they're actually really working within the system uh, helping out with with themselves but also working with journalists and government organizations to basically say get these people off our land. And unlike with the territory that took place in Brazil, where you're dealing with um, the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, who's openly hostile towards both environmentalism and Native people, in Nicaragua, there's at least a little bit more of a receptive nature to everything because you're going through the proper channels and there's a bigger grassroots movement behind it all. It's very heartwarming to kind of see them make even the most incremental of progress, at the same time, very eye-opening to see just how out in the open the corruption is and how the government does deal with the few people who do get caught. There's a lot of discussions about you know, the meat industry and a lot of people tie it into, into dietary habits and vegetarianism and anything like that. This puts a very human face on it and gives you a, an interesting new uh, context and dynamic for how the process works. Like You don't have to be a vegetarian to think, hey, this is wrong the way they're just clear-cutting rainforest and threatening in- indigenous people all for the sake of Nicaraguan beef. It gives you a different way into the issue that you might not have otherwise thought of. And along with the territory from last year, very immersive experiences. Like you're basically there with the people on patrol. You know, the the, the camera's very first person as they're climbing rocks and dealing with the elements. It's... it, it It's really fascinating. The territory got shortlisted for the documentary feature Oscar last year, but didn't get nominated. So this could be another attempt to get that same type of story through to the full attention of the Academy.
1: That actually ties in really well with uh, my first movie, which is called Foe, which stars Saoirse Ronan and Paul Mescal. It's set in 2065. It does have to deal with agriculture. Basically, these people, this young couple lives on a farm, and in 2065, the Earth is dying. And it's dying, but it's really beautifully shot. So it's kind of like Mad Max meets uh, Terrence Malick. So... Ronan and Mascal they're a young couple, they're living in this farm in the middle of nowhere, and this guy approaches from some government-y type office, played by Aaron Pierce, and he basically disrupts their lives when he comes in to draft uh, Paul Mascal's character to work on this space station that they're building. Gives me kind of like Elysium vibes, but we never see it. So it's it's sort of the the thing in the sky. It's actually hard to review this movie because I don't want to get into spoilers. It's one of those movies that's not about what you think it's about. And it has a lot to do... It's basically, it's like set in this sci-fi future, which seems very plausible, uh, scarily enough, but it's really a character-driven drama. Like all good sci-fi, it really kind of is about exploring human relationships, human nature, uh, explores the nature of love, explores the nature of commitment. I thought it was really interesting. I don't know, I don't know how well this picture is going to do in terms of like box office and stuff, but you know, because there's Uh, you know there's a name in it that will get some sort of release but really strong acting very strong writing really well shot well directed garth davis is the director and i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of curious actually to see what what this does all right so what's your next film
0: okay now we're moving into the international fair here uh the promised land this is denmark's official entry for the oscar for international feature and they have a pretty good history there they won with uh, another round about three years ago they were nominated for the hunt back in 2012 and both of those films starred Mads Mikkelsen as does this one so they're going with what works basically so this is set in uh, the 17th century and it's based on a novel basically Mikkelsen is the bastard son of a landowner of noble title or whatever who basically just denied his existence in fact the, the Danish name for the movie is just bastard in spite of that he worked really hard and rose up to the rank of captain in the military in an attempt to basically earn the nobility that he couldn't get by birthright he solicits the crown to say hey this untamed heathland in the jutland region that no one's been able to cultivate i can do it and he wants to build a settlement in exchange for an actual noble rank they're like sure go ahead you're gonna fail like everybody else Turns out he actually knows what he's doing, and he's making progress, and that really ticks off this guy named Frederick de Schinkel, played absolutely brilliantly slimy by uh, this guy named Simon Benebjerg. He's the judge of the county, he's the nobleman, and he basically says, "Uh, no, this land is mine and it's always been mine, I don't care what the government says, I own everything and you work for me. The back and forth they have of the class warfare, basically, as DeShinkle tries to assert and dominate through property and wealth rather than any kind of actual legal authority makes for a really great dynamic. And then you have some really fun side stories about, you know, love affairs. There's a bit where Nicholson's character is in love with the woman who's engaged to DeShinkle, but she hates him. So it's like, hey, here's another nobleman I can marry if he gets his title. This is a way out for me. You also have the more salt of the earth, uh, Anne Barbara, who she was what they call a a tenant worker, but it's basically a slave. Um, She and her husband worked for DeShinkle and fled because he was a a cruel master, end up working for Mickelson. The husband dies, so now she becomes an option because she's the one willing to actually put forth the work to have any kind of social mobility. And then the third way through this is you have these uh, nomadic people that are called the taters or the tartars. Um, I, they they call them taters in the film, but basically uh, Turkic nomads who live in the woods, and they're not allowed to work, uh, but basically Mickelson ends up adopting one of them. There, there's this whole overarching message of, you know to To coin the cliche, the friends we made along the way, but but it's really you thought you had this straightforward path to your dreams. And not only did it not turn out that way, just reality dictating different circumstances, there is a lot of worthwhile things, blessings, adventures to have on the periphery of that if you allow yourself to deviate from the path. And Nicholson just gives an absolutely brilliant performance, that perfectly subdued, dignified, Stoic and yet still deeply emotional, just through his face type of performance. He's he's one of the few actors in the world who can pull this off every time he tries it, and he does it again brilliantly here. I would not be surprised if Denmark hears its name called again, either with the shortlist or the nominations. When when it's all said and done, they really, again, they're just doing what works. Like give give me a film, give me Mads Nicholson, question mark profit.
1: <laughs> this next one. <sighs> It's, it's a tough one. So the film is Maestro. It's a biopic about uh, Leonard Bernstein, directed and starring Bradley Cooper as Bernstein, with Carey Mulligan as his wife, Felicia. The thing that's difficult about this movie is all of the elements are great. Like, the cinematography is amazing. Matthew Laboutique shot this. He should Probably get the Oscar production design, makeup, costumes. All of the elements of it are there. There are some strong performances. Sarah Silverman actually is in it, and she she gives a a good performance. And Carrie Mulligan has never I, I I've never heard her hit a wrong note. She's just fantastic. The problem that lies with the movie is in the fact that it's less a movie and more like weaponized Oscar bait. It's as if the film was carefully constructed to win critics over and win awards this is bradley cooper swinging for the fences and really trying to hit one out of the park and it's like he saw citizen kane and said i'm gonna make something i'm gonna make my citizen kane this is going to be my movie to end all movies this is going to be what i'm known for and i'm going to put this great piece of art up and everyone will praise it and unfortunately like I said, all of the elements are great. But the biggest thing is that you don't really get emotionally involved with the characters. At, at no time did I really like feel for the people. Even though it's not like the actors are doing a bad job, but it it just you and maybe it's in the writing, but it just doesn't feel like you, you you can't the pathos isn't there, the empathy isn't there. And I just felt like The whole time, this movie had me by the back of the neck and was making me look at it and going, uh, praise me, give me awards, that's what we're here for. And it took me completely out of the film. And I know some critics are going to love it. I know they're going to say, they're going to look at all the elements and say, this is brilliant. And I know some critics are going to feel like I do and feel like this is a total Oscar craving production. And, you know, like, why are we doing this kind of thing? But, you know, I, you know, I do admire people when they take a big swing, but I, I, unfortunately, I feel like it's a swing and a miss. And I, you know, I, I don't fault people for trying, but man, that was just hard. It was just a hard, hard one to watch. I will say, if you want to see a better version, I think a better version of this type of story, check out The Lovely, directed by Erwin Winkler and, uh, starring Kevin Kline and Ashley Judd, it's basically the same movie. Music, uh, it's about Cole Porter. The Lovely covers a lot of the same ground and does it better in a more entertaining way. Where, and it, and it, it is quite showy and theatrical in places, but not so forced.
0: We move now to the Teacher's Lounge. This is Germany's entry. Germany won the category this year with their remake of All Quiet on the Western Front, which, like, swept the Baptists and everything like that. It was was a, a legitimate Best Picture contender. But now this is a much more intimate story but kind of has the same themes like this whole idea that conflict is pointless and there's only just collateral damage and people getting hurt so you have leone benish who i've i've not seen in anything else but she stars as a carla novak and she's an elementary school teacher and the film begins with basically a scandal going on there's been a string of thefts from the teachers like like people stealing money the teachers suspect one of the students. They don't know which one, but th- but it's got to be a student, basically. They're going about their investigation in all the wrong ways, using intimidation techniques, racial profiling. It's, it's not good. Carla basically decides, maybe I can catch someone in the act. She sticks some money in her her sweater, hangs it on on the back of her chair and in the teacher's lounge, and then leaves the webcam on her computer on. And sure enough, someone does take the money. It looks like it's one of the members of the staff. In good faith, she tries to get the money back from who she thinks did it, then reports it to to the principals, and all hell breaks loose. Everything spirals out of control because technically what she did, recording without consent, was illegal. The accused is the mother of one of one of the students, one of her best students. She's a math teacher, and this kid is clearly her smartest pupil. Before long, basically everything comes back on her. Like, the the fact that she's the only actual victim of a crime here is completely forgotten by the 30-minute mark. The faculty turns on her, and they were never really on her side in the first place. She's a new teacher, and they try to bully her into doing things their way, whether it's, you know, according to the law and the rules or not. And then she gets an outright revolt from the parents and the students. There's a lot of really solid tension and mystery in what's going on, what's going to happen next. I mean by the time by, by the time one of her students interviews her for the school paper in the most innocent manner possible and it turns into the the tabloid event of the year everything is completely out of control and there really is no positive way that this can turn out for everybody involved and I think if you focus on the fact that again this is a, this is about highlighting the pointlessness of the conflict itself rather than who's right and who's wrong you're really going to enjoy it. The ending didn't do much for me, and I'm not going to spoil it, but but just think of the concepts of European movies and endings in general, and you'll kind of figure out already where I'm going with this. The, 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 there's just so much there that you needed to stick the landing, and they just didn't quite get there on that for me, but still, well worth the ride.
1: All right, so next up for me from New York Film Festival was Ferrari, directed by Michael Mann, starring Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and uh, Shailene Woodley. And the first thing I thought about Ferrari was, it's good because of what it doesn't do. It doesn't try to distill a guy's life into two hours. It's just a particular time in Ferrari's life. So Enzo Ferrari, as many people know, he was the guy who invented the Ferrari cars, but he was also a race car driver before that. This film takes place in the late 1950s. He's sort of at a crossroads in his life. He's having trouble with his business. He's been told by his accountant, his business is failing, and he needs to bring in more money. He needs to bring in a business partner if he's going to survive. And because he's basically been making more race cars than he should, He needs to make more production cars that he can sell to support the race car business. And he has a racing team called Team Ferrari. The accountant surmises that, okay, so Team Ferrari's got to win this big cross-country race, basically like a cross-country race across Italy. And he thinks if they win that, they'll get the attention they need to draw in somebody like a Ford or a Fiat to help subsidize Ferrari and partner with him. Now, in the meantime, he's also in... Uh, sort of the the final stages of his marriage to his wife, Laura, who's played by Penelope Cruz. They had a son that tragically died of an illness. So now he's, they've kind of like fallen out of love, but they're still business partners. So it's very tangled up. And Woodley is his mistress and the mother of another son, a bastard son. And Ferrari also in addition to going through all this business stuff, must decide whether or not he's going to give the child the Ferrari name. And uh, you know, Driver, of course, is very uh, and and Cruz. They're both very strong. Driver is very stoic in the role, which I think, in the hands of a lesser actor, would come off sort of bland and um, not exciting. But the moments of emotion that we get out of him are great. You know, and they're done very, very subtly. Cruz has the more showy role. She'll probably get some nominations. He might get nominated. Juxtapose with all this character stuff, you have race car driving. You have these guys driving, uh, you know, 150 miles an hour around these test tracks. And you've got these guys in the cross-country race, which is sort of like your big climax. And then there are some horrific accidents in it as well, where cars just, you know. And these cars are like like, to look at them, you wouldn't, nobody would race in these things. Like, they're, first of all, they're convertibles. So it's just like you're in an open car with your head sticking out. All the drivers are wearing helmets and goggles, uh, and they're driving really fast. If this thing flips over, you're, you're just dead. Like, any anybody gets an accident, these things, uh, you know, they're a headstone. It's really exciting, and man captures it really well. It's a shame that man doesn't Get these fall release, critically acclaimed type movies enough? Yeah, because he's a wonderful director, and he's a wonderful director of actors, and he gets great, great performances. So I would definitely recommend that one. Um, and actually, I think all of these are recommendations for me. I, you know, I definitely would, you know, definitely check them out. And you know, if you're wondering what's going to get nominated, what's you know, what you're wondering what's you know what you're going to see again in March. Uh, With little gold statuettes, these are probably all in contention. All right, so uh, let's move on. What do you got? uh, What's the next item up for bid?
0: All right, now to to the most unique film, I think, that I saw at Mill Valley. uh, This is called They Shot the Piano Player, which the title alone inspires imagination. So this is presented like an animated documentary, kind of like how Flea took the world by storm a couple years ago, but it's not. It's... It's a docudrama, kind of a quasi-documentary, and thankfully you do get clued into that pretty early because the main character is voiced by Jeff Goldblum. His dulcet tones are kind of actually perfect for this. They use the framing device of this American music journalist writing a book and doing a book tour and basically telling the story through, you know, a press junket kind of thing. But basically, it's about a Brazilian jazz bossa nova pianist named Tenorio Jr., who as this guy learns, was one of the biggest talents in the world in his time, uh, in in the, I think, 60s and 70s. But he only put out one album, and that was because while on tour in Argentina, he went out for cigarettes one night and was captured, tortured, and very likely executed because just the dictatorship in Argentina at the time. In essence, he's, he, he's a side casualty. And you get all of these interviews and sound bites from actual jazz musicians who knew and worked with him over the course of his life. Uh, you, you mean you, you mentioned like you know a Citizen Kane type thing? Like this is kind of like a Citizen Kane esque exploration of you know why this guy died, why he had to die, what you know what what was his crime if any, and what was taken from the world with the loss of his town because he was only like he was only like thirty six when he died uh presume again presumably he died his body was never recovered we have we have no idea for certain but testimonials say yeah he he was killed after a couple of days in captivity there's that curiosity and need to understand that permeates the entire film and one of the things i love about it aside from again just the The examination, Goldblum's narration, because again, his voice is perfect for this. Uh, that 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 just that note, perfect baritone. Um, the animation style just kind of blew me away. Like it it was the film was screened kind of as a work in progress at the Annecy Film Festival this year, so it was out of it was out of competition. But now it's done and it's getting it's it's going to get released in theaters in November. Like it's gorgeous like it's bright and vibrant like the best i can compare it to in that sense if you remember back to fantasia 2000 the, the, the second fantasia film that disney put out in 1999 there was a segment that they did on rhapsody in blue by george gershwin that basically animated new york in the 1930s in al hirshfield style set to that classic piece and in a similar sense i look at the animation style here as If you could animate Bossa Nova as a sound, that's what this looks like. You know, from a story structure standpoint, it reminded me heavily of a film called Loving Vincent from a few years ago that got nominated for Animated Feature, which took another Citizen Kane-esque look at the death of uh, Vincent van Gogh through his oil paintings. Like, like they they literally animated, like, 60,000 individual oil paintings in his style... And used the actors, uh, Sir Sharon and, and several others, in a like a photorealistic, uh, representation of real people that he painted to kind of tell that story. It's like, so you combine that with, with the Fantasia 2000 element of Rhapsody in Blue, like, it's really insightful and just gorgeous to look at And, and again, like a documentary, it teaches you something and makes you want to learn more, but this is strictly speaking a work of fiction like i mean it's even the factual elements it's a hypothetical you know we we it's conjecture we're positing on what happened to this guy based on the relationships he had throughout his career and his life from his from his wife and um his mistress to again band leaders both living and deceased uh, some of them participating in live interviews some of them participating you know obviously through through archival footage but just hearing about this one guy, you know, just a bearded guy with glasses who could play the piano like nobody's business. And just in the blink of an eye, he's gone, but he, but he leaves that much of a legacy five decades later. It's, it's kind of fascinating. And it's like, and I'm, I'm, I'm no connoisseur of jazz. I, I like it. I, I, you know, I've always listen to it pleasantly, but I've never really gotten into it as an art form, but a film like this makes you want to, and that's always a positive.
1: All right, man, I'm going to wrap up, but you know, thanks for, uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get back to you on another episode when it comes to AFI fest, we'll be covering festivals, uh, basically, for the rest of the year at this point, because there's so many in October, um, we're going to be doing this through November and before our hiatus at the at the end of the year. But uh, for those who want to check out your work, read your reviews,
0: etc., where can they find you on the web? You can find me at actuallypaid.com uh, and then at actually underscore paid on YouTube and Twitter, which I will always say is called Twitter. It is not called the twenty fourth letter of the alphabet. It is Twitter. Twitter.
1: All right, man. Thanks so much. And that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for taking this trip down the rabbit hole. For more of our content, including more movie reviews and film festival coverage, visit our website, No Rest for the Weekend Podcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube, youtube.com Get Behind the Rabbit. I'd like to thank William Hammond and our sponsors, Black Magic Design and JMR Rentals. For Behind the Rabbit Productions, I'm Jason Godby. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.